Chapter 5, The New House I believe I was about nine when my mom and dad bought their first home. It was a small two-bedroom, one-bath house with a single-car garage, but it was their very own. I think they paid a total of $4,000 for it. It was in Vallejo on a street named Hogan Avenue, which was located in a small, all-white area that consisted of maybe three or four blocks. On the north and on the south were two large, predominantly black communities, although there were a few white families that lived in those two areas as well. Chabot Acres was on the north and Flosland Terrace was on the south. The government built both of these communities to house civil workers for Mare Island. They were similar to Roosevelt Terrace and Federal Terrace, but not as nice. Unbeknownst to me, there was a very special little girl who lived in Chabot. At the same time, I was living on Hogan Avenue. The government house her family lived in was just about a mile from our house. Her name was Molly Hobaugh, and her dad worked on Mare Island just like my dad. As it turned out, I didn't actually get to meet her until ten years later. I will tell a lot more about her in a coming chapter. On the east and west of our little house, the land was pretty much undeveloped. There were two railroad tracks running north and south, one on each side of our house, probably a hundred yards apart. The street we lived on was situated between the two tracks and ran parallel to them. Naturally, one of my claims to fame is that I come from both sides of the tracks. During the war, both of these tracks were heavily used, but by the time we moved into our new house, the train traffic was just occasional. Many great adventures were borne on and around those railroad tracks. My parents were very excited to have their own home. I remember going there in the evenings before we even moved in. It was about a five-mile drive from Roosevelt Terrace. We worked together as a family, cleaning, painting walls, and refinishing the hardwood floors. Finally, the day arrived when we were able to move in. We were all very proud of our new home. I lived there until I got married, and my parents lived there for about another 15 years after I was married, until they moved to their second and final home in Napa. I was still attending grade school at the Federal Terrace School when we moved. I think I was in the fourth grade. My mother worked as the head cook in the cafeteria at the school, so we commuted every day from our home on Hogan Avenue. My father would drive us in the morning on his way to work at Mare Island, and we would get a ride home after school with one of the other cooks, a big fat lady who talked from the moment we got in her car until she dropped us off. What a relief it was to get home. There were a lot of advantages having a mother who was the head cook at the school cafeteria. First and foremost, I always had plenty to eat. In those days, everything was cooked at the school, and it tasted really good. My favorite was Sloppy Joe's. I loved it when they made Sloppy Joe's. I could always eat at least two at a sitting. After lunch, there was playtime in the schoolyard before the afternoon session started. Each day, my mother would set up a little stand where she would sell Eskimo pies and popsicles during the playtime. Naturally, I had an ice cream bar every day. Life 
was good. Not long after we moved into our new home, my sister informed me that I was too old to be sleeping in her bed. I thought so too. But where the heck was I supposed to sleep when we only had two bedrooms? At that time, my brother Verl was away attending dental school and my brother Don was serving in the army in Korea. So it was just me, my sister Elaine, and my mom and dad. To settle this little dilemma, my father informed me that I would have to sleep in the room over the garage. Well, that would have been just fine, except there was no room over the garage. There was a wood floor and a ladder going from the garage floor up to it. That was it. The rest of the attic was open. So my bedroom was basically the unfinished attic. I didn't like it up there one bit. It was scary. Monsters were up there. Well, maybe not monsters, but to a nine-year-old, it was plenty spooky. And there were rats. I could hear them chewing on things. My father set traps and eventually rid of the attic of the varmints. There was no heat up there. But my bed had plenty of blankets and quilts, and each night my mom would heat water, put it in a quart jar, wrap a towel around it, and put it between the sheets near my feet. It was toasty when I got in bed. If your feet are warm, everything is okie-dokie. My dad actually did build a bedroom over the garage a couple of years later. This became my permanent bedroom until I got married. It was really a nice room with a real staircase, three windows, a closet, and enough space to be comfortable. When my brother Don returned from the service, we were roommates for a while, which made it kind of cramped, but it was still okay. The scariest experience I ever had in that house actually happened on a Halloween night when I was 11 years old. I had gone to Federal Terrace to trick-or-treat with my friends, and when I got home, my father told me our next-door neighbor had been shot. Then he sent me to my sister's room, she wasn't home at the time, and told me to stay there. I wondered why I had to go to my sister's room by myself. Why couldn't I just stay in the kitchen with my mom and dad? I was petrified, thinking that the killer might be hiding nearby, perhaps lurking right outside my sister's window. Well, as it turns out, our neighbor had shot himself. Wade was a returned veteran of World War II and had become kind of a recluse. I think the trauma of the war had gotten to him. He lived in the house right next door to us, and yet we hardly ever saw him. While our house was freshly painted with flowers and a lawn, Wade's house was badly in need of paint. It was unkempt and had no lawn, only weeds. The shades were always drawn, and there was a dark feeling about the place. That Halloween night, Wade knocked on our front door. When my dad opened the door, Wade was standing there with blood all over him. My dad knew instantly that it was not a Halloween prank. Wade had shot himself in an attempted suicide. The bullet entered underneath his chin and exited out one of his eye sockets. My dad took care of him, called for an ambulance, and cleaned up the mess. 
all before I got home. Both my mom and dad were still in shock when I got there and needed to be alone to talk it out. That is why they sent me to my sister's room, which makes more sense to me now than it did then. Wade recovered and from that time forward wore a patch over the hole where his eye used to be, which made him even spookier than before. All of us neighborhood kids made sure we steered clear of him. A couple of years later, he again attempted to take his own life. That time, he was successful. He was found in his garage, sitting inside his car with the engine still running. He had been asphyxiated by carbon monoxide. His house remained vacant for a long period of time. It was nice when someone finally bought it and fixed it up. The bad feeling finally left. To end this chapter, I want to tell you a story about a duck, about me, and about my dad. Shortly after we moved into our new home, I came across a wounded duck while I was out adventuring. It was a wild duck, a mallard in fact, with beautiful coloring. It had a green head with a white ring of feathers around its neck, and the rest of its feathers were a combination of many colors, blues, greens, and browns. It was hobbling around on one leg, so I was able to catch it without much effort. I immediately fell in love with my duck and brought it home. My dad let me have a little area in the backyard for a duck pen, so I set about fixing it up. First, I put up a little fence. Next, I found an old steel chest about a foot deep, maybe a foot and a half wide and three feet long. I took the lid off the chest and then buried the chest so the top edge was level with the ground. When I filled the chest with water, it became a miniature pond. My duck looked at it curiously, cocked his head, waddled up to it, paused, and then plopped in and started paddling around. I'd have to say all in all, he took to it like a duck takes to water. All was well for a while. My duck healed and he seemed to be happy. There were two problems though. First of all, ducks can be kind of messy. And second, this one quacked a lot. My dad had a lot of patience, but it, it, it finally ran out. Knowing how I felt about the duck, my father devised a plan to get rid of the duck and at the same time keep me happy. In order to do this, he entered into a conspiracy with one of our neighbors. Remember how I told you in the last chapter you got to watch your parents? Sometimes they can be pretty deceiving. Well, that's what happened here. Anyway, one day our neighbor came to me and told me how much he liked the duck and offered to buy it for $5. That was a lot of money back then. $5 in those days would be the same as $30 or $40 today. Well, guess what? I turned him down flat. When my father asked me why I wouldn't jump at such a generous offer, I simply used a small boy's logic on him. I said, if I take the $5 and give up the duck, I'll just spend the $5 and then I won't have the duck or the $5. Besides, I said, you can't buy love for $5. I know there is a message or two somewhere in that little story.